Hello, and welcome to the Global Migration Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Migration Studies at UBC. My name is Gabrielle dompies Wolliver, and I'm your host. The Migration Center is located in the unceded ancestral home of the Musqueam people. As we think about migration and mobility on this podcast, we remember that Musqueam people have dwelled here for millennia, and that this place is rightfully theirs. Today we'll be hearing about a project that is grappling directly with the relationship between immigration and indigeneity. Canada is lauded for being a welcoming host society to migrant newcomers, but discourses around settlement and integration tend to ignore the realities of Canada's status as a settler colonial state. What would it mean to take seriously the fact that these are indigenous lands to which Canada has no right to offer welcome? Can practices of immigration and settlement be reconciled with the possibility of decolonization? These are the questions that brought together partners in Coast Salish Territories, or Vancouver, B.C., for a multi-year research collaboration called Belonging in Unceded Territory. Here's how their story begins. I was very excited about moving to Canada as, as an immigrant. Canada had this positive reputation as a multicultural and welcoming country. And it felt like a place where I could be an immigrant and study immigration in a way that affirmed difference. And that's the first time I had felt that. My name is Antje Ellermann, and I'm a professor of political science here at UBC. And I also direct the Center for Migration Studies here. I moved to Vancouver from Hong Kong, but I, I'm originally from mainland China. My name is Ansel. My Chinese name is Xiao Yu Zhu. I'm currently a communications and fundraising coordinator at Frog Hollow Neighborhood House. Um, I'm a newcomer. Growing up in Germany in the 70s and 80s, I was the first generation of high school students who really had Holocaust education really comprehensively integrated. And that was a very powerful experience. The question that was always kind of at the forefront is that of collective responsibility. And what does it mean for Germans born after the Holocaust to still be collectively accountable for what happened? And so I left Germany after high school for many reasons, but that was one reason I just felt I needed some breathing space. So came to Vancouver 2019 and had no idea about the decolonization movement or any of the historical context that comes with colonization. So to me, it has been a tough ride for me. It's just awakening moment. This topic is very sensitive and also it has so many layers to unpack for a person. And then I, I lived in various countries, including the U.S. and while I studied there, I didn't really grapple at all with the fact that I was living in a settler colonial country. That wasn't part of the conversations that were around me. And then moving to Canada in the early 2000s, it was very similar. I am Jess Siegerts. My indigenous name that I had taken on is Danage, meaning Martin Eyes. And I am Dene Cree. I am the intercultural, intergenerational, it's a very long title, community programmer. So my role with Frog Hollow is to help facilitate and create spaces for community learning, community engagement. My grandfather was Dene, 
Dene Suslin from up uh, Treaty 8 territory. My grandmother was Cree from up in the same territories, just different parts of the lake. There's this huge, huge lake, Lake Athabasca. It's the northern parts of what is colonially known as Saskatchewan. So my grandfather from Fond du Lac First Nations, uh, Victor Siegerts, and my grandmother was Mary Sanagay, and she was from Fort Chip. And somehow they met in the middle. And then after a few years, I started to encounter arguments about settler colonialism. And it was the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that really put that on the agenda. And there were also conversations in the settlement sector in Vancouver, so immigrant and refugee serving organizations, who started thinking about what does it mean to welcome immigrants when you don't really have the right to welcome as a settler. As a newcomer, first you you come here, you need to think about, uh, I need to find a job, find a housing, get myself settled. And then again, you need to think about the place that you chose to move to and you want to call it a home. And you are told this land is stolen, it's unceded, and with all these ugly legacies of a country, you're almost experiencing, start to question your choice to move here. Why? <laughs> my family, they mostly grew up in Uranium City. My mother, all my uncles, uh, which was a huge mining town back in the 60s and 70s. My auntie Vivian came here as well because, just as the name and the title of the place is Uranium, that place it was so polluted and it's mostly unlivable. So she would consider herself an ecological refugee on these lands. And I thought that that was a really important way of distinguishing our presence here. Migration studies really ignore settler colonialism. And so how do I bring these things together? And then I had a group of colleagues here at the Center for Migration Studies who were also interested in exploring that intersection of migration and colonization and indigeneity. And that really helped me to make connections in the way that I had not made before. And so I was at that point of really personally struggling with what does it mean to be a settler here? Like, how can I um, be a settler without colonizing? For myself, I came here understanding these lands somewhat, but not to the extent that I do now. And I hold a lot more respect to these lands now than I did, and all lands, more than ever. Jess, Antje, and Ansel were brought together by this research project called Belonging in Unceded Territory. It's a collaboration that began in 2019 between UBC, Frog Hollow Neighborhood House, and two settlement sector organizations, AMSA, or the Affiliation of Multicultural Societies and Service Agencies of British Columbia, and ISS of BC, the Immigrant Services Society of BC. It's a multi-year project, and so I can only speak about the first year, which we've finished now. And that was a close collaboration with Frog Hollow Neighborhood House, which is one of Vancouver's neighborhood houses in a neighborhood with very high immigrant population. 
I've really learned through working with the team there, the Wakasali team, which is a decolonizing project team, about the way they serve immigrant communities and try to build decolonizing initiatives into the programming they do. It started out as a small, distinct project, and now they're really trying to integrate decolonizing initiatives into all of their programming. This project was gifted with a Salish name called Wakasali by an elder um, shame point. Wakas means frog. Sally means spirit. The story that Shane gifted us was that the frogs are called to the season. So early spring, one of the first things you hear are the frogs. But the frog also is signaling to the rest of its environment that it's time to get to work. Wakas Sally began as a program funded through Heritage Canada with Diane Woman, Sherry Small, and in partnership with uh, MVAC. That's the Metro Vancouver Aboriginal Executive Council. Eventually, things kind of fell into place where Vancouver Aboriginal Community Policing Centre became our major partner. And with the leadership from there, from Norm Leach, who has really brought so much to what this initiative became, we started what we called connections workshops, and they evolved into decolonizing workshops. And especially with the pandemic, we were able to slow down. Everyone was pretty much locked down. What else is there to do but then to start listening? We were also feeling this is such important work that we need to do at neighborhood houses, especially neighborhood houses are like place-based organizations. We build deep connections with the neighbors and, and neighbors with diverse background. Being place-based has deep significance, not just for neighborhood houses, but also for indigenous ways of being. Fundamentally, place-based refers to the physical land where we dwell. The relationships we make in and with that place have to do with this word, belonging. So in migration studies, discussions about integration and identity typically look at national identity. And talking about place-based identity, first of all, recognizes that where we experience belonging and where we experience inclusion and exclusion is at the local level. It's where we live. It's where we work. It's where our children go to school. And this is where we connect with community or we fail to connect with community. And just from that perspective of where do people live their lives and where do they establish ties and what shapes their identities, it recognizes that that really takes place locally in a particular geographic space. But then there is another aspect to place-based identity that comes much more from indigenous understandings of belonging where place is the land that we live on. And the land is seen as sustaining us. And our role is to take care of the land. And so land really shapes people's lives because of that interdependence. And so in that sense, place-based belonging opens up a space to center the land in belonging, which is something that typically is not done at all in studies of immigrant integration. 
Is there anything more that you would say about this distinction between integration and belonging? Because that's a point that you make is that integration is the language used in the existing discourse, but belonging is something different. What can you tell us about that? So I think integration has a number of problems. First of all, there's the assumption that immigrants will integrate into a receiving society, if not immediately, then over time, if not in this generation, then with the next generation. And so integration is measured as immigrants becoming more similar to the mainstream. And the closer and the more similar immigrants get to that, the more successful integration is seen. So there's a real strong and often not explicitly acknowledged normative component that it is positive to become like the mainstream. And belonging tries to get away from that in allowing for a critical lens to be applied to the mainstream and asking, well, do we actually want immigrants to become like the mainstream if the mainstream is so structurally shaped by settler colonialism. If immigrants are not just to become fellow colonizers, they should not become like the mainstream unless the mainstream changes. So that's a really fundamental point that's really important to me and that is fundamental to the project. Talking about belonging has also other advantages. It talks about everybody, not just immigrants. Everybody negotiates belonging. Everybody wants to belong. Most people struggle to belong at some level. And so there is kind of a, you know, a shared humanity in the conversation about belonging that also is very open-ended because it doesn't tell you what the belonging is to. It opens up again that space for the possibility of belonging to land which again, with integration, that's not even on the agenda. And yeah, I think it opens up a space for indigenization, for thinking about belonging in different ways, of belonging to land, if we change that preposition, rather than the land belonging to us. And that, I think, is quite transformative if people switch their thinking and not centering themselves, but centering the land. In addition to focusing on the land, indigenization also relates to the research process itself here. Who's holding the conversations, how they're being facilitated, and what kinds of questions are being asked. Two kinds of discussion groups were held during this stage of the research. With non-indigenous community members, Ansel and Antia conducted pretty typical interviews. But with indigenous leaders and community members, Jess hosted talking circles, according to indigenous protocols. So we were interviewing leaders from neighborhood houses across Metro Vancouver and leaders from immigrant service organizations, also with BIPOC activists that we built a relationship with during our work at Frog Hollow and other neighborhood houses recommendations. So we asked them questions about their understanding of belongingness in the context of both work setting and also personal lives. We started out with a very open-ended question to create a space for whatever they wanted to bring to that. And then we moved toward prompting people to think about what belonging on unceded territories means to them. We asked about how can we reconcile living in Vancouver 
as a settler with decolonizing? Is there a way in which we can move toward a de decolonizing our belonging? Is it possible to reconcile welcoming immigrants with promoting place-based belonging that is not colonizing? We ask participants to reflect on what does decolonization mean to them and what the obstacles are for decolonizing. It was a mix of white and racialized people we talked to, but what everybody who was not indigenous really had in common, I'd say that's true for nearly everybody, kind of a, a real emotional grappling with their identity as a settler. And that's a word that people volunteered that word and how they referred to themselves, recognizing that they are not from this land. And there was a mix of responses ranging from feeling quite overwhelmed and paralyzed and not really knowing how to move forward to others who had moved beyond the guild and were trying to move forward through activism. It was clear that there were no clear answers. It's a process. It's a process for everybody. Those people who felt they had arrived at something like resembling an answer emphasized the importance of allyship and relationship building with indigenous communities as something that allowed them to move forward. But even their conversations kept coming back to the struggle of having this political commitment to moving beyond colonization and yet raising families in this place, in many cases being homeowners. And people are really struggling with owning property, with the recognition of owning that on unceded territory and the money not going to local nations. So property was a topic that came up quite frequently. Most people were very much aware of the ways in which they had benefited from living here and the inequalities that exist between Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities. Quite a few people we spoke to talked about that shock of having arrived from places that were colonized as well, arriving here and realizing over time that they are complicit in colonialism here, that shock of being a colonizer themselves of sorts. That's really hard. One of the things I found through these interviews, because we're interviewing both non-Indigenous and Indigenous people in a community, there's a difference when I talk about land, Indigenous leaders, their understanding about their relationship to the land, it's, it's spiritual. And non-Indigenous folks normally don't think too much about that or don't treat land as that important. And I feel that that was starting to shift from treating the land only as property or having no um, conscious relationship or emotional relationship towards the land to now putting land at the forefront. We heard some of this difference in relationship to land and how Jess introduced herself earlier. But this is something she brought with her to Coast Salish territories from her own ancestral home. Remember, she is indigenous, but she too is a settler here. 
So just being indigenous does not give me rights to these lands whatsoever. I, as I said, Dene Cree, my territories are my ancestors' territories, which cover mo- a big part of the north, central, even parts of northern BC. But even though my people were migratory people, we would never have traveled over to these lands because who wants to climb those mountains? <laughs> and so realizing the land that I'm on, it's very foreign to me because of the climates, especially being from the subarctics to the beautiful Pacific coast. There's nothing that we share of land that are similar. So as Dene Cree coming into these lands, I'd have to learn the language of these lands. I'd have to learn the plants of these lands, the people. You know, there's protocols, and we understood that. I am a settler, I am a guest, and I am here to learn from the Coast Salish, not to impose any of my teachings or my ways of being and knowing. It's myself to come here and understand their ways of knowing and being and what it means to be a good guest. This is an important example, an indigenized example, of how some negotiate being a settler without being a colonizer. The research process also tried to adopt indigenous ways through the talking circles that Jess hosted. How could they help counter the long history of academic research that takes without consulting or without giving anything in return? So those talking circles, when they started, we wanted to make sure that things were done right in the sense of what we were offering and what was going to be taken. All that I kept thinking about was safety, compensation, proper protocols, as well as um, making sure that we were doing it with clear intentions of being in a good way. And I feel that that was done well, and especially with a lot to do with uh, the support of Antje, who was open to these suggestions and finding ways to decolonize the research itself, which was really neat. By having that big question that is constant in the field, especially where Indigenous voices are used in research, is who is it benefiting? And that's what we wanted to keep asking, was who is this benefiting and how and why? And if not the Indigenous people directly, then how is it going to be affecting them indirectly? Talking circles have been an indigenous tool for many, 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 many moons. And it's been something that we learn as children in school. You know, we've learned even with resolving conflict, you're sitting in a room, And each person gets a chance to speak and to come to a solution, or maybe not a solution, but respect. So the idea was bringing these talking circles to this research with Indigenous leaders and knowledge keepers and community members, and they were really beautiful. We were able to open up our talking circles in a good way with prayer, with acknowledging land, with acknowledging each other and having an opportunity to share where we were. 
So the talking circles were structured quite differently from the interviews in that we had somebody who gave a land acknowledgement and did a welcome, which was a quite lengthy welcome and really sharing about their own introducing themselves and where they're from, their ancestors and where they're at today. Anyone who's working and in connection to land and indigenous themselves are going to introduce themselves in a way that establishes who they are, where they are, to where they are, to when. And that was much more important for the talking circles than in the interviews, where the introductions were done in a very colonial way. You know, we, we were pretty couple of sentences about ourselves, and that's all we think people need to know about who we are as individuals. We don't need to have a, a whole list of questions when it's going to be answered and given in just introductions themselves. And so we had very few questions for the talking circles. The first one is, where is your ancestral home? We asked this question too in the interviews, but we phrased that very differently. We're like, where are you from? <laughs> the second question, rather than having an open-ended question about what does belonging mean to you, the question was already much more indigenized. It was, could you describe to us your relationship to the land? Because it was just the assumption that that, that that is what belonging means. And how does that relationship to the land shape your belonging? There was a distinction made between what it means for indigenous peoples as individuals and communities. People talked about decolonization as healing, overcoming the internalization of colonization through Indian residential schools, through the trauma that's been passed down and being socialized in a settler society. So decolonization requires that internal healing and kind of an inner decolonizing, which people thought of as caring for yourself, responding with love rather than with hate to others. And somebody said, I want to walk this land like it's my land. That's what decolonization means to them. And then there was a discussion about what decolonization means in relation to settlers, which is different. And that is really, it was the same insights that are the answer to the question of what would you say to newcomers to this land. So what participants said is if people come here, they should conduct themselves according to indigenous protocols. They should ask for permission to be here. They should take only what they need shouldn't harm others, should live in a way that's sustainable and is based on mutual respect. What does decolonization mean? Well, like even from what I said, decolonization just means being in a good way, but to other people it's more action. There's more advocacy, there's more destructuring things and it's just, it's different for everyone. So I found that surprising and interesting and really beautiful. How even as an indigenous person that, you know, we're still trying to understand what that truly means and what that looks like for everyone. We've actually spent a lot of time in the project talking about what does decolonization mean because there is no kind of one definition of that. And I've learned a lot from different people I've, I've spoken to. And I do want to acknowledge the Squamish facilitator, Tatalia Michelle Nahani, who has really helped me to define decolonization in a way that makes sense to me. And she talks about it as a process of 
becoming aware of really deeply entrenched ways of being, of thinking, of doing things and of relating that are shaped by settler colonialism. We're talking about European domination over indigenous peoples, over indigenous lands, and the attempt to replace indigenous societies with European societies. And so when we talk about uncovering these ways of being and thinking and doing, that's something that has to take place at the individual level and also at the collective level. Both are really important. And so decolonizing is really a, a process of deconstructing. It's uncovering, it's unlearning, it's undoing, and it's open-ended. I don't think anyone will ever say we have arrived at that point of decolonization. Tatalia Michelle Nahani talks about um, what it means to indigenize as centering indigenous ways of knowing and of doing. And she defines it as connecting with the land and being better ancestors. And, and, and that's a term that I really like, being a better ancestor. Being in indigenous spaces as a newcomer, as an immigrant, there is this awareness of a lack of ancestry and roots to this place. And thinking about ourselves as ancestors, thinking about seven generations ahead, really changes that. It, it's a very grounding way of thinking about ourselves and our place in society. Especially with newcomers, they have different stories as in why they came to Canada. Through these workshops, we not only talk about what it is on this land, we also talk about what's their connection to their own motherland, where they came from. So Norm, one of the things that he will always say in the workshop is we are all indigenous from somewhere. And that just immediately like, aha, yeah, we are. That really makes people feel looking at things in a very different perspective. Some of them actually got really emotional because some of them might feel disconnected with their land. So through this process, they realize it is important to acknowledge where the wisdom and resilience they got from their own family, generations of ancestors from their own motherland, and those wisdom gets passed on to them as well, so that they are resilient today to choose a different land, to build a home, to survive, to, to have a life. The connection between decolonizing and indigenizing is that you need to begin decolonizing to even create the space for indigenizing. But if you don't move beyond decolonizing, if you're just deconstructing old colonial narratives, that gets you to a point where I was at growing up in Germany where nothing positive takes that place. There needs to be a new narrative that allows us to find a new identity. And indigenizing allows for some of that if it's done with care and not in a spirit of cultural appropriation. One really important new narrative is 
the narrative of being a guest. I think it's a challenging narrative because we often use the term in land acknowledgements of being uninvited guests. That's a tough nut to swallow in terms of recognizing that you may have been asked as a newcomer by the Canadian state to come here, but not by the indigenous peoples of this land. But I think we can also talk about focusing on the importance of what it means to act as a guest, and not just a guest within a community, but a guest on land as well, which again gets back to the importance of taking care of the land and recognizing that the land sustains us. I've often been struck of how indigenous people from other parts of the country talk about themselves as being guests here. So it's not just a settler term, it's recognizing that you're on a different territory from your ancestral territory. And there was something quite personally, I'm speaking really personal here, something quite liberating in that. It's just a factual acknowledgement. And it recognizes that you're here because somebody else took care of the land. There is a responsibility and accountability toward those communities. And being a good guest means living according to the rules that these communities have decided on for themselves. So thinking about being guests is really fruitful as a new narrative. It also is such a stark contrast to the migration literature, which talks about immigrant receiving societies as host societies, where it's the settler society who's the host. And I like the fact that it challenges that, where the host is now not Canadian society, but the host is it's the Musqueam, it's the Slaver Tooth, it's the Squamish nations. And what does it mean to be a guest on the territory of these hosts? Challenging Canada's status as the host society also points us to another way the state falls short of the promise it seems to offer, particularly in terms of multiculturalism. Multiculturalism has a lot to offer in that it really embraces diversity to some extent. And I'm saying to some extent because I I recognize there is structural racism that racialized immigrants deal with here in Canada. But when we recognize the reality of settler colonialism, multiculturalism becomes much more problematic because it's really designed to hold out a promise of tolerance and cultural equality. So even if we take that promise at its face value, it treats different groups in society as cultural groups that can coexist through tolerance. And that leaves no space at all for indigenous peoples in terms of pre-existing and self-determining nations that are not just a cultural group like other groups, but they are the peoples of this land. And so it depoliticizes the dispossession and displacement of indigenous peoples. If multiculturalism does not acknowledge that, it really simply perpetuates what's already happening in terms of colonizing. Another question Antje raised in thinking about Canadian society is how do newcomers learn about Canada's history and settler colonialism if they arrive as adults? One big change we're seeing in Canadian society is curricular reform in elementary and secondary schools in terms of what is called Indigenous content. Immigrants who arrive as adults will not go through that schooling system. 
And so if they don't learn about that in community organizations like neighborhood houses, settlement sector organizations, it may be very hard to really learn about Canadian history and present in that respect. briefly describe what the next steps with the research are now that you've done the interviews and talking circles what happens next so in the next step of the project we're going to bring in one of the other community partners we're working with um, immigrant services societies of bc iss of bc and we will run a series of dialogue circles so we're moving from just talking to organizational leaders and activists to now talking about clients of these organizations and what we are planning on is having a series of three dialogue circles per group that begin with a session that is focused on education and decolonization training. And then the next two sessions will be facilitated to have these same kind of conversations, but in, in groups that are less used to really thinking very actively through these questions. What do you hope that the impact of this research project will be, broadly speaking? One of the reasons that we we joined this partnership with UBC, AMSA, and ISS of BC in this research project is part of the Wakasali initiatives. It's to seek allies in doing the colonizing work and learn from each other and support each other in this process, including partners in different fields. I hope actually this project, the research itself, can trigger systemic change in academic institutions such as UBC. The way of doing research and the process of engaging the community and how you make sure people leave without feeling just as like research subjects. And then we are just curious to see what this opportunity could bring to our communities overall in terms of decolonization. Because in the long term, it's a lot about education. And this is not a textbook where you can get answers from. And having dialogues and collecting these process and stories helps people to understand the two big words, decolonization, indigenization. When people feel they relate to it, they will start to think more and eventually bring changes in actions. It's a project that I very consciously went into not having clear expectations of what would come out of it because it was so, it felt very challenging. And because there was a personal element to that, it was not your regular research study where you kind of know where it's going in terms of the regular outputs. And so for me, what I think right now is the most important impact will be the relationships and the connections that are being made through this project of organizations and also individuals who are committed to thinking about decolonization. And I hope that it will lead to more collaborations that move forward that agenda. I would be worried if sometimes you are only talking to people who are passionate about this cause without hearing voices from people who are outside of this movement. And those voices are important too. Eventually, you want to bring more people into the movement by holding hard conversations and with, according to Norm, 
one of the indigenous leaders and our, our friend uh, has done so much guidance in this work with love, with care, to make them feel that we're in this together. Our promise and our offering to the community is to be good guests and be good uninvited settlers and guests on these lands and what that means. Just understanding how insignificant we are as human beings, really, to this land that's been here a lot longer than us and making sure that we're, we're stewarding it properly. I think anyone can feel a sense of belonging once they, when they know what land they're on and what's here. Millions thanks to all the indigenous leaders, their generosity and time and support in leading us in this journey. So much wisdom they share with us and we learn so much. And we really hope that this will eventually benefit us all. Special thanks to Jess Siegerts, Ansel Zhu, and Antje Allerman for sharing this research with us. We echo Ansel's thanks to the Indigenous leaders who are helping to guide and facilitate this project. Thanks as well to all those who shared in the talking circles and interviews, and the community members, colleagues, and staff of Frog Hollow Neighborhood House, AMSA, ISS of BC, and the other UBC migration scholars engaged in this project. You can find links to these organizations and other related resources on our website. This research has been funded by a Shirk Partnership Development Grant. The Global Migration Podcast is produced by the Center for Migration Studies with the support of Atia Yekta, Francine Rodriguez, and Center Director Antje Allerman. We acknowledge once again the Musqueam Place that supports the Center's work and that gratitude for it is not enough. For more episodes and information, please visit us at migration.ubc.ca. Thanks for tuning in.